Well, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today for the eighth episode of season two of the Healthy Skeptic MD podcast. I'm Dr. Michael Hockman. Today, we're going to continue our discussion of common medical topics that many of us will need to consider at one point or another in our lives. Today, we are going to talk about pain management in children. Specifically, do the concerns related to the use of opioid medications to control pain that are so concerning in adults, do these also apply to children? And my guest today is someone who is quite well versed in pain. She's also a friend and uh, colleague of mine, Dr. Lorraine Kelly Kwan. She is a pediatric surgeon at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. She's also a faculty member with me at the Keck School of Medicine of USC. And in addition to being a practicing surgeon, she recently was the lead author on the first formal guidelines on the use of opioid medications in children before and after surgery that was just published this past fall. So uh, if you know anyone who might have a child who's going to be undergoing surgery recently or just general pain concerns in children, this is a great episode. If you find today's discussion engaging, please search and subscribe to the Healthy Skeptic MD wherever you listen to podcasts or on YouTube. Pass it along to others who might be interested. And if you do have a chance, please consider leaving a review. Okay, so before we jump into our interview on pain control in kids, we'll start with a rundown of the health news of the week. There are several items to touch on, so I'm going to try to go through these rapid fire as best I can. So the first item I want to mention is uh, data, uh, new data on vaccine safety that we got this week. The CDC published a formal report on the first 14 million doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that have been administered in the United States. The punchline here is that severe, serious adverse reactions are quite rare. So for example, anaphylaxis reactions, which are severe allergic reactions, occur at a rate of about 4.5 cases per million doses of the vaccine. To put that in context, it is a bit higher than what we see with the flu vaccine, but it's lower than what we see with the shingles vaccine. So it's certainly right there in range. Nevertheless, as I tell my patients, be prepared for the mild but annoying side effects, the headaches, the body aches, the uh, the chills that, that the majority of people get, particularly with the second dose of the vaccine. And make sure you give your body uh, time to prepare and recover for this. Stay hydrated. I've actually had two of my patients faint within a day of getting uh, one of these vaccines. So um, please do make sure to give your body time to prepare and be ready. Uh, the second item is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We got data on this week. Uh, again, this is uh, the one-dose vaccine. Uh, it did appear to be uh, a bit less effective than the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. The, the efficacy was 66.9% in preventing moderate and severe COVID-19 infections. In terms of hospitalizations, there were two in the vaccine group in comparison to 29 in the placebo group. There were no COVID deaths in the vaccine group versus seven in the placebo group group. There were some mild side effects like headache, fatigue, and muscle aches, but there were none of those severe anaphylaxis reactions, and even the mild side effects were less common than what we saw with Moderna and Pfizer. It's very likely the FDA will give an emergency authorization for it this week, most likely even by the time this uh, podcast is released. I think this, uh, this I'm sorry, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is going to be a good option for lower risk, younger, healthier people, particularly those who only want to get one dose and want to lower their chances of getting those mild vaccine side effects. 
So the third news item I want to touch on is we got some preliminary data this week about whether or not the COVID-19 vaccine is going to be able to prevent transmission of the virus. Now, it is true that most other vaccines, flu, HPV, pneumonia vaccine, MMR vaccine, do effectively cut off transmission of, of those infections, but not always is this the case. So uh, the meningitis vaccine is an example of a vaccine that does not effectively cut off transmission. So the preliminary data we got this week is quite encouraging. There was a UK study that estimates that the existing vaccines reduced by about 86% transmission. There was an Israeli study that suggested about an 89% reduction in transmission. Now, this is very good news that the vaccina vaccination is going to be able to break this pandemic and help us uh, get out of this situation. The other good news this week is that we've continued to see very sustained and substantial reductions here in the United States in new infections as the vaccine is getting more widely uh, distributed. This is particularly noteworthy because it's February and typically in February respiratory viruses like the flu and cold viruses are at their peak. So we're seeing the opposite pattern here. So this is, uh, this is all, all obviously a very good sign. Now, my only hesitancy in being unequivocally optimistic at this point in the pandemic is that there's still two lingering questions in my mind. The first is, how long is immunity, either to previous infections or the vaccine itself, going to last? We have some pretty good evidence to date that it's going to be at least eight to nine months, but we still don't know for sure that it's going to last, last longer than that. There's every reason to be optimistic here, but we just don't know uh, for sure. The second reason, which has been a big focus in the media, is of course these uh, new strains, the South African strain, the UK, Brazilian strain, and so forth. Um, these really are wild cards. Uh, so far, the good news is that uh, existing antibodies and immunity against the standard strains seem to be reasonably effective against these variant strains, although not quite as effective. But the concern is that a new strain will develop that will evade this uh, immunity. And this is, of course, what happens every year inevitably with the flu when we get a new um, strain that affects uh, everybody uh, every year despite vaccination and prior infections. So again, we're just going to have to wait uh, on this one. Time will tell. Uh, you know, things look good uh, at the moment, but, uh, but this is still an, an outstanding question. So the final news item I want to highlight is actually an article published by a recent guest we had on the Healthy Skeptic MD. That's Dr. Vinay Prasad, who had an article in MedPage today. And it was about how the new uh, appointee for Surgeon General under the Biden administration, Dr. Vivek Murthy, has some pretty noteworthy conflicts of interest. So in the past year, uh, Dr. Murthy has received $400,000 from Carnival Cruises, another $800,000 from Airbnb, $300,000 from Estee Lauder, $600,000 from Netflix. Now, all these companies uh, have deep interests in COVID-19 policies in the coming months and years, and the Surgeon General will have a big influence over this. The question here is whether these conflicts of interest are uh, disqualifying. According to a survey uh, that was attached to that MedPage Today uh, article, 92% of readers felt uh, it was after reading uh, Vinay's article. Um, I, I tend to agree here. I would much rather see a, a Surgeon General who does not have these deep ties to industry at a time when we really need public health leaders who are independent uh, and doing what's best for our nation's health. But we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, but it's an important thing to be uh, aware of. So that's it for the health news items of the week. Uh, let's go on to our uh, interview with Dr. Lorraine Kelly-Kwan. Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Lorraine Kelly-Kwan. Ah, thanks for having me, Mike. 
Well, we have some history together. We were both Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholars together at UCLA. It seems like a long time ago, but I guess it was just in uh, about 10 years ago. Um, it was a fun, fun fellowship. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, uh, we're playing for the other team now the, on the other side of town, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> that's right. For those people who are not in L.A., the, you know, UCLA and USC are, are not the same institution. And so, Lorraine, you are a pediatric surgeon at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Uh, tell us a little bit about your clinical practice there. So as a pediatric surgeon, I treat surgical conditions that occur in children. And so that means I operate on uh, children as early as uh, infants who are premature in the neonatal ICU, all the way up through uh, teenagers with surgical conditions. So some of the procedures I do, um, small procedures I do, like a hernia repair um, or removing an appendix. And then I do larger surgeries as well, like removing a tumor. Uh, CHLA is pretty busy. It's a big hospital. Um, and so uh, they keep me pretty busy here. You and I were just talking before we started recording, and you said that during coronavirus, there have been some added challenges, uh, certain operating room precautions that need to be taken. Just out of curiosity, what you know, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, uh, LA had a recent spike in uh, COVID. And so anytime the community rate of COVID goes up, it also goes up in children as well. You know, most people know kids typically are asymptomatic if they have COVID. Some kids do get very, very sick. Um, but having a child with COVID and then also a surgical diagnosis creates additional challenges, special operating rooms that need to be created for those patients and uh, special resources. So even in a children's hospital, uh, there's significant challenges when COVID goes up. Well, yeah, it's really been impressive what I've heard from some of the pediatric hospitals, in, including Children's Hospital Los Angeles, how they've sort of persevered and kept doing the important work that they're doing in the, in the face of the, the pandemic. So thanks for, for the good work that you and your team do. Oh, I love it. So our focus today is actually going to be on pain management. And I imagine as a pediatric surgeon, you do see a lot of children in painful situations. Could you just tell us a little bit about what it's like when a kid is in pain and what types of pain uh, you, you see as a, a pediatric surgeon? So some of the conditions that we treat present as pain. Um, one of the most common things that I treat as a pediatric surgeon is appendicitis, and children typically will come into the hospital complaining of abdominal pain. Um, now, once a child undergoes an operation, they may have pain related to the surgery um, that they received. Um, so that managing that pain in a safe and thoughtful way um, is, is something that I'm very interested in. Um, especially in light of the recent opioid epidemic and how that impacts uh, children who require surgery. How did you become interested in pain management uh, in, in the first place? Was it because of the interest in the opioid pandemic or, or you know, how did you become interested in this topic? Yeah, great question. So I actually, I did my fellowship in Ohio at the Ohio State Nationwide Children's Hospital. And um, uh, as many of you probably know out there, Ohio was hit really hard by the opioid epidemic. So when I was caring for children um, at that time, I noticed a lot of them were coming from homes um, where substance abuse, particularly opioid abuse, was an issue. Um, and at that time, uh, it was the same time when physicians and surgeons specifically started asking, you know, what role do we have in this? We prescribe opioids after surgery. And I started thinking about my own prescribing practices as a, as a young surgeon and how that may impact, you know, the families that I care for, the children I care for. And that's really what made me start thinking about doing research in opioid use in pediatric surgical populations. Yep, that's certainly 
certainly makes sense. Um, so w- when I was doing my medical training, which was not that long ago in the 2000s, um, the big push was we doctors need to do a better job of managing pain. The, the thinking was that we're too dismissive of patients' pain concerns. We're not adequately uh, treating pain. In many cases, the, there was a push for us to use uh, more opioid medications, that chronic opioids, for example, could could help uh, alleviate chronic pain syndromes. Um, was that was that thinking right or was that off base or, you know, in retrospect, uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's so funny. I was trained the same way uh, in medical school. And um, uh, if you look historically many decades back, um, way before the opioid epidemic, physicians used to be concerned about prescribing opioids specifically for their addictive potential. And then two things sort of happened at the same time. Number one is what you're talking about in like the late 90s. Um, there was a push to treat pain as the fifth vital sign. So in the same way that if a patient comes in with a high blood pressure, we should treat that blood pressure. If they come in with a lot of pain, we should treat their pain. Um, And at the same time, there was literature coming out where people suggested if you give opioids for to treat pain, the the likelihood of being addicted to opioids uh, was low. And since then, we found that that's actually not true. Even if you have a painful condition, uh, you can still get physiologically dependent upon opioids. Have we gotten better at treating pain since 20 years ago when that push started? I think that we are definitely improving. Um, I think that there, uh, uh, in a whole, the U.S., uh, physicians are aware of the opioid epidemic. People are uh, trying to prescribe more responsibly, prescribing less opioids. Um, but we definitely haven't got down to pre-pandemic levels uh, in terms of the prevalence of opioid misuse and opioid use disorder. Um, and specifically for pediatric populations that I care for, um, this is a population in which um, people usually don't think about the opioid epidemic and how it impacts children and teenagers. Um, so they're uniquely vulnerable uh, in this uh, epidemic um, because their brains are still developing. Yeah, and as we'll talk about, you know, there's certainly been a pendulum swing where there's been a there was a big focus on pain management, and now there's been a recently a concern about overuse of opioids, inappropriate use of opioids. Um, I think it's also important that we don't lose, as we'll talk about later today, the uh, the the focus on making sure that patients' uh, pain symptoms are adequately managed, but in a safe and and responsible way. But before we get into those details, what are opioids? How do they work? What's their mechanism of action? So opioids are a medication that bind to an opioid receptor um, that decrease pain in the body. Um, So opioids that people may have heard of, prescription opioids like OxyContin, Oxycodone, and Vicodin. Um, Opioids also include synthetic opioids, um, such as fentanyl. And then opioids also refer to uh, illicit substances like heroin. So we're all aware, well aware of the concerns with uh, abuse and tolerance to opioids, the overdose concerns, as you mentioned about what you experienced in in Ohio. But what about for short-term pain situations like uh, wisdom tooth or post-surgical pain? Are they they ever an appropriate uh, pain strategy in those situations? So the answer is... Yes, they can be part of an effective pain management regimen. So children have real pain, they undergo big operations, and they sometimes need opioids to help them recover from that operation. 
Uh, one of the things that's really unique about working with kids um, is that in addition to non-opioid pain medications that we can use in children, things like um, Tylenol and ibuprofen, um, children also can uh, receive soothing techniques like an infant who requires a small procedure, having their mom hold them during the procedure that can provide some relief. Um, also, children can have, there are distraction techniques that can distract a child if they're undergoing um, a small procedure to decrease their pain. Um, so opioids can be used, uh, can be useful and can help a child recover, especially after surgery, but they need to be prescribed appropriately, stored appropriately in the home, and then when they're not used, needed anymore, disposed of safely. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think we, too often we forget that there are very simple things that you can do that does not involve even a pill that can help improve pain control. In adults, I often tell them just some deep breathing, um, do things to distract you. There's there's many sort of tricks that, that can help improve um, uh, pain control. And I think that probably has a lot to do with the mind-body connection. We know that these stress hormones that get released can really exacerbate, um, you know, pain situations. So I think, you know, with kids, that's particularly important. Um, so, um, we're talking about using opioids for short-term basis. What, what do you mean by short-term basis? That question always comes up. Are you talking a week, three weeks, a month? So I'd say that there's no magic number that applies to everybody. And this is a really important question to talk to uh, your physician, your surgeon about is whether opioids are needed and if they're needed for how long would they be needed? And as I mentioned before, how to store them and dispose of them safely. Um, studies do show the longer you use opioids, the more likely you are to still be using them at the one year mark and at the three year mark. Um, so someone who's using them for more than five or 10 days has a higher likelihood of using opioids at one or three years than someone who is using it for a less amount of time. That doesn't mean that everybody who uses opioids for five days will be using them a year out, but there is a proportion of patients that will be. You recently authored uh, guidelines that received widespread coverage in the New York Times and elsewhere regarding opioids for children after surgery. I believe these may have even been the first uh, formal uh, sur surgical guidelines in children, specifically on the, uh, on the use of opioids in kids. What did these new guidelines uh, recommend? Well, there's basically three main pillars um, that build the framework for these guidelines. Um, the first is that healthcare providers need to recognize the risks of opioid misuse, diversion, and uh, abuse that are inherent um, to prescribing opioids. Um, the second thing that providers need to recognize is that there are lots of non-opioid uh, medications that are safe and effective to use uh, for children who require surgery. And then the third thing is that families really need to be educated before they, their child undergoes an operation about what to expect in terms of pain management after surgery and then again after surgery. So parents want to know that if they need to go to CVS ahead of time and get ice packs, get Tylenol, get ibuprofen, they want to know that they have the correct dosing of any non-opioid medication. And really setting families up to succeed after surgery and setting up expectations is really key. 
And so, so this is a great vision for how pain should be controlled after surgery. Um, do you think that we have a long way to go to achieving that vision? In other words, is there a big gap between the way medicine is currently practiced, pain control currently happens, and what your guidelines recommend? Uh, I think that there is room for improvement, but I think uh, there is a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of interest. Um, there was a lot of interest in our guidelines uh, when they came out, which I think is very encouraging that people want to do the right thing. Um, physicians, we want to care for our patients. We want to help families and help children uh, get better in a safe way. And parents, most of all, they just want to be helpful. They want to help their kids and make sure that they can get through a surgery, which is very stressful in general, um, but do it in a in a safe and thoughtful way. So I think there is good there's good energy behind this movement. So, so the target audience for this podcast is the general lay public. And, you know, your guidelines uh, are targeted towards a medical audience. But what would you want a, a general uh, lay audience member to know, a parent, for example, of a child undergoing surgery? Um, you know, how should they be engaged in the decision about what type of pain medications their child should receive after an injury or a surgery? Great question. So I would say that um, if your child requires an Operation, ask ahead of time about all those things you need to get in the house to help them recover. Ask them, typically ask your surgeon, how many days uh, should my child be resting for? How many days should, should I expect to go by before they're back to their normal selves? Typically, that's the conversation I have with families um, when we decide a child needs an operation. I'll tell them how many days their child may be sore, um, what day it's safe for them to get up and walk around, and when they should be expecting their child to be back to normal. And setting those expectations to families really helps them in, in the long term um, prepare for the recovery period. Well, I often tell my patients whenever we can manage a situation without a pill, it's always better to do so. Now, there's certainly appropriate uses for pills, and many patients with pain, especially after surgery, are going to need uh, a medication. But um, uh, where can families find information about uh, you know non-medication strategies for, for improving pain control in children? Um, so I can tell you that at CHLA, we have a great website dedicated to um, uh, recovery of children after surgery and how to manage their pain. Um, but I think that, I think that um, there are lots of fantastic resources um, driven by children's hospitals in particular um, to help families um, get through this period. But again, talk to your physician because there is real large surgeries that cause significant pain in children. And the last thing you want is to undertreat a child's pain, and keep, uh, which would inhibit their ability to recover and get out of bed. We don't want to be so afraid of opioid pain medications that we don't use them when it's appropriate. Yeah, and I, I think it's been great the attention that uh, has been focused on opioids over the last couple of years. But I also think that the 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 training that you and I learned uh, 10, 12 years ago about how important pain control is is not is something we shouldn't forget and we shouldn't overcorrect correct to that situation and forget that pain, as you said, can be a really disabling condition and we do our patients a disservice if we don't uh, take it seriously. Like a fifth vital sign, as you said. Yeah, it, it's you need to find that sweet spot right in the middle where we are minimizing risk and maximizing benefit for our, our patients. Yep. And I think it's a tough, sweet spot to find, but I we'll think your guidelines it. are, you know, <laughs> exactly. And I think your, your guidelines are a good uh, way to help us uh, get there. Well, um, I have one final question for you, uh, Lorraine. Um, you know, the focus uh, today has been on pain management, but opioids are also um, can can lead to addictions and overdoses. And um, 
You know, I'm just curious your perspective on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, I've heard anecdotally that there's been a spike in um, in opioid-related uh, harms uh, during during the pandemic. I'm just curious if you have any final closing thoughts on that uh, issue. Yeah, it's so interesting. If you look um, historically at natural disasters, so if you look at communities that have lived through an oil spill or lived through a tornado, after a disaster happens, um, there can there is typically an increase in um, mental health disorders, so an increase in depression and an increase in substance use, and that's for any disaster. And then this last year, we have people isolating at home, um, and we have lots of people uh, in stressful conditions losing their jobs, having family members sick, personally getting sick, all of these things together. Um, I would can tell you that the addiction science community is concerned about a reemergence of the opioid epidemic within the larger pandemic of COVID, and it's it's not over yet, and it's something um, that that is definitely concerning, and even more reason um, to think about how to responsibly prescribe opioids um, before they go into a family's home. Right, because uh, uh, those leftover prescriptions can actually become the source for many of these addiction problems. Is that correct? That's correct. So if you look at um, teenagers who say that they have misused opioids, so used more opioids than they're supposed to to treat pain or use them to get high, um, those teenagers can share their opioids among friends. Um, and I can tell you that, you know, the teenage brain, even if a teenager is the same height as me and, you know, speaking in a conversation like you and I are speaking, their brain is still developing. They are very uniquely influenced by peer pressure. Um, so removing excess opioid pills um, from the home uh, is, is very important towards um, overall safety of a family and uh, also a community. And one final question along those lines, say you have a leftover prescription of Norco from a knee surgery or whatever it is, um, sh- should you keep that around in your, your medicine cabinet? So I would say no. So they should be used. So uh, opioids should be uh, stored uh, in uh, away from children, not on the kitchen counter um, in a secure area. Uh, and then when they're not used, they shouldn't be in the house anymore. So at CHLA, we have an opioid disposal bin next to our pharmacy, so families can use that. Um, but if you don't know where a local opioid disposal bin is, the DEA actually has a website. You can just put in your zip code and they'll tell you where the closest one is. A lot of CVS and Walgreens have them, um, and they also have them at police stations as well. Yeah, I was going to say that, that I've noticed more and more of the pharmacies having those medication disposal bins right at the pharmacy uh, desk. Um, you know, you can throw them in the trash. There's always a concern, um, you know, about scavengers coming around and getting pulling them out of your trash. So if you don't have an option to use a, a disposal bin, I've heard that you can sort of mix it with uh, some, some unpleasant substance like kitty like litter, kitty litter yeah. or something. Yeah. So, um, you know, you can dispose of it and not worry about someone misusing it and finding it. Yeah. But the best way, again, like you said, is an opioid disposal bin. Right. That's certainly the preferred route as long as you as you can find it. Um, well, Dr. Lorraine Kelly Kwan, this is a great uh, discussion. Um, you're doing really important work for children, and I think these guidelines are going to really help help us find that sweet spot of taking pain seriously, but not uh, treating it in, in dangerous ways with uh, excessive opioids. So, thanks for joining me today. If you find today's discussion interesting and engaging, please let your friends and family know. Give us uh, a review if you have a chance, and uh, we'll pick it up again uh, next week with the Healthy Skeptic MD. Thanks again for joining me today, Lorraine. Thank you.
Thanks so much, Mike.